questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. This interview is dedicated to all those who seek learning and knowledge wherever it may lead them. It should and will open your mind not only to the dark side of academia and the way truth is suppressed, but also to a multitude of topics, historical, literary, scientific, and medical, on which narratives handed down by universities are found wanting. What is more, it should reveal organizational, political, and financial problems within universities that compromise research and teaching in pursuit of the truth. It is hoped that intrepid seekers of the truth will help spread the word about the way that unbiased research and teaching is currently under attack within the university systems of the world. Get ready for the dark side of academia, how truth is suppressed. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrich. From Professor Gloria Moss, my journey began with a degree in French language and literature, then one in medieval studies, and then degrees in the social sciences, including a PhD. My professional background was a training and development manager in industry before I moved full-time to academia, becoming a professor in the field of social sciences. Over an extended period of time, starting from the 1990s, the process of removing myself from the status quo gradually evolved with the realization that it no longer provided solutions or accounts of events or phenomena that match reality. This process was kick-started by the process of applying critical thinking to a number of topics that came my way. The process of asking questions opened up new vistas and made it apparent that society was not always welcoming of these insights. This produced determined efforts to map the new territories and restore critical thinking to areas of interest. This kick-started initiatives to establish new institutions, be they places of learning such as Truth University or publishing houses such as Truth University Press. And we have a more comprehensive bio on our website. The website is truthuniversity.co.uk and directly from London, England. I would like to welcome Professor Gloria Moss. Hello, Professor, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hi, Mel. I'm very well. It's, it's good to be with you on your show. Thank you. And I know it's late in London, so I appreciate your presence here today. May I call you Gloria? Please do, yes. Well, Gloria, I've been immersed in your work for the past few weeks. A lot of the publications and the publishings from, from your website, truthuniversity.co.uk, are very on the forefront of things that we discuss in this program, especially the censorship of truth and academia and so many other topics that I'd like to discuss today. It's going to be a plethora of things, but I read your bio. Why don't you tell us how you get to where you are now, someone that came from academia 
and all of a sudden you can critically think and step outside that very strong box where you were part of for years? Well, that's a really interesting question. And I, I would just say it at, at the outset that I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool academic. That may have something to do with uh, the fact that I, I have a tendency to question. Um, first part of my career was spent actually in industry, uh, in human resources, on the training side, training and development. And that's helping organizations become really effective and helping the people within them flourish. And that was fine and dandy and interested me until certain questions popped up in my mind, um, for which there weren't answers at the time. And, for example, I, I was one weekend visiting a watercolor exhibition and I walked around and the catalogue was expensive, so I didn't buy it. Uh, I just jotted down on a piece of paper the numbers of the paintings that appealed to me. Um, they didn't. None of the paintings showed the name of the painter or the price of the painting. So I just jotted down the numbers of the paintings that appealed to me. It was my personal shortlist, if you like. And then I sneaked to look at the catalogue. And to my surprise, I found that Virtually all of the numbers on my list related to paintings created by female painters. So I thought, well, maybe most watercolour artists are female. And curiosity got the better of me. So in the end, I bought this somewhat expensive catalogue and, and found, looking through it, two things. One is that actually uh, most of the artists were men, not women. And then I did a statistical analysis on my shortlist and discovered that actually what had happened that, that day when I my shortlist was made up largely of female artists was pretty freakish from a statistical point of view. So I thought, oh, maybe men and women have different styles of painting. And I, I went back and had another look at the gallery and I could start to see differences and I thought, well, there must be loads written about this because this was the era of men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Do you remember that book? Oh, I remember reading it when it came out in 1992. Ah, you remember the date even. Well, fantastic. Sure. So that dates my experience. That was pretty well when I had that experience. And I, I fully expected to find a full literature on this topic because people had looked at men and women's emotions. Had they looked at the, you know, how they how they, um, what's the word, um, imagined visuals. And I did a proper literature review and I found almost nothing, virtually nothing. Nothing on comparing the um, paintings or drawings or designs of, of males and females and certainly nothing comparing their preferences. And I was intrigued, you know. Um, I wanted to know whether I was freakish or whether this was a phenomenon as yet uncharted about the world. So that prompted my move from industry actually into academia. I spent many years researching this topic of gender and design, personality and design, nationality and design. How do these variables of gender, nationality and personality affect the designs that people both create and prefer? And 
20 years on, I have some answers to that question. But they, they weren't there before because nobody had done the research. So how did I set up, out on this journey? I suppose accident is one way. Um, another way I found was spotting anomalies, finding that things didn't quite tie together. Uh, and I, I personally think that's a big trigger to a lot of the research that I'm interested in and many of the people on your program are interested in. The official views of things often don't quite stack up. And I know it's important to, to mention this. The book, most of the interview, I like to focus on many other things, but the the book, very important to discuss, The Dark Side of Academia. This is a professor who obviously wants to remain anonymous. Your your company is the publish, publisher of this book. Why is it so important for somebody today to, to keep himself or herself anonymous? Is it because of fear of retribution, fear of being let go from academia, or worse? I think it's all of those things, Mel. I, I think it's all of those things. I, I think many people would say that the system, if we can describe that the, the university system and the media system, is there to control information. And those people who seek to disturb the information that's provided do so to some extent at their own peril. And so people who, who want to uh, draw people's attention to failings in the official narrative are probably wise to do that on an anonymous basis. And anyway, we I think we're living at a time when many people would say that ego must be foregone, that we need to move forward with our higher selves and leave ego behind. So whoever's written this book does not need uh, the, um, the, the, the sort of praise or should we say a program that, that some people might that might might be leveled at the book. You know, it, truth needs to be put out and the identity of the people who put out truth doesn't much matter as long as we know that the people who put out that truth have credibility. And the fact that, that this book is written by a secret professor tells us that the academic in question reached a certain status. It's not easy to reach the position of professor. So that tells the reader that the book is written by somebody who has some clout within the system. When it comes to science, science is all about observation, replication, and prediction. That is, to me, the distillation of what truth is all about. Why is academia trying to suppress the truth these days? Well, I, I talked about the system. I, I personally would see universities and academia as part of the system and perhaps no different from other parts of the system. A handmaiden, if you like, to other parts of the system, working closely with the, with the governments of the respective countries, working closely with international funding bodies. I mean, if you look at the Melinda, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, for example, they're funding research across the world. Uh, um, universities are working with a multitude of governmental and non-governmental organizations. So when we talk about the suppression of information, 
it's not necessarily unique to them. It's just that it might come as a surprise to listeners that universities, which many people might think are bastions of learning and knowledge, are in the business of suppressing information. You know, <laughs> that, that, that might really occasion a bit of cognitive dissonance in some of your listeners, which is why this book needed to be written, because uh, according to the author, and this is one of the reasons we published it, things have reached a point probably of no return where things need to start changing in in quite a big way. And maybe I could refer you to two parts of the book in saying that. There's there's a forward to this book by somebody I believe you know well, John Hamer. Oh, sure. And there's an afterward by Dr. Tess Laurie, who, as many of your listeners will know, is founder of the World Council for Health, and she trained as a doctor. And what she writes in her afterward, I'll, I'll just read a bit from what she said. She said, after reading The Dark Side of Academia, I've come to the conclusion that critical thinking and genius have long been banished by these legacy institutions. And by that, she means universities. So just going back, she says she's come to the conclusion that critical thinking and genius have long been banished by these legacy institutions that are rotted to the core and now in need of dismantling before they do any further damage to young minds. And, and Tess Laurie, Dr. Tess Laurie, is a researcher herself and has a high citation ranking. So she knows a thing or two about research. And in her afterward, she expresses the view that universities are more interested in the size of the grant, the size of the funding, than in the subject of the research. And then if I could draw your attention to page 149 of the book, um, I'll just read you an extract there. It, it, it concerns uh, some of the links that universities have with some of these external organizations that have been mentioned. And one of the organizations, which is the focus of attention, uh, on page 149, is the World Economic Forum, the WEF, which is based in Davos, which is not an elected body and not accountable through the democratic process. And on that, uh, on the WEF website, is, you can find an article dated to 2020, which was authored by two professors. One um, professor from Queensland University, obviously Australia, and the other very senior person with the title of Pro-Vice-Chancellor and Development and External Affairs under his wing at the University of Oxford. So we have these two professors, one from Queensland University and one from the University of Oxford, who wrote an article that appears on the WEF website. And here is what they state, and I'm not going to read very much, but readers who are interested can perhaps, um, if they're interested, buy The Dark Side of Academia, the book, How Truth is Suppressed, and look up the reference in the book, and then from there go to the WEF website. What they write is as follows. They say, through their engagement, teaching and research, 
universities must redouble their efforts to work alongside corporations, governments, and NGOs as they search for new business models and policies to assist the Great Reset. Now, I don't know your reaction to that, that essentially they're saying teaching and research in universities is there to assist the Great Reset. That was my next question, because when you and I discussed this, you mentioned those words from the professor, that teachings and research are there to develop policies to enact the Great Reset. Yes, Why that, are that's these according to the professors at Queensland and Oxford University. And Oxford University has topped the league table, the Times Higher Education Supplement league table of universities for a good number of years. Why so are these the number one? Why are these non-government organizations, the NGOs, why are they so pervasive now in crafting the script for our future? Uh, well, we, you, you well ask that question. Uh, why and should they be in that position? Because they're not accountable and the um, public has no power to bring them into being or indeed say that their performance um, is not up to scratch. They're unaccountable. So that's a very good question. Why? Well, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Well, even right now, even in the United States, and I bet you in the UK, most of the so-called experts behind the scenes, let's just pick on the CDC here in the United States, and uh, these are unelected officials who are totally unaccountable for their mm. actions. So mm. the politicians use them as the scapegoats, the people to blame in the event something happens. And we've been predicting this for the last almost three years that these people were going to present something without any facts. People were going to believe it. And this is something that I'm glad you're here today because we're going to be discussing why are people so impressionable? Why don't they see the truth? Why don't they engage in critical thinking? Those are very important aspects. And I think technology is being used for that. Even I believe in the book, it says that no longer are we going to go through language Uh, teachings because they find it to be of no value now that we have, you know, things apps like the Rosetta yes. Stone. So they're not going to need language anymore. No cursive. Cursive will be an ancient uh, language. If somebody in 50 years sees that, they'll be like, well, what is that? An ancient language. So why are they mm -hmm. taking away the, the, the foundations of society and education? Well, yes. And you could argue that the objective for a long time has been to produce a population, not of philosophers, but of obedient workers. And in fact, that was Rockefeller's avowed objective in the early years of the 20th century, when he got involved in education. It was precisely that. And um, you could argue that it's business as usual now. I mean, here in the UK, the UK schools minister in 2015, somebody by the name of Nick Gibb, so he was minister in charge of schools, he described education as the engine of the economy. Now, that may be an aspect to education, but does that explain everything about education? Or, or might you say education is there to enrich the, the individual, to widen their perspective, 
um, all sorts of alternative objectives. But no, Nick Gibbs says education is the engine of the economy. And oh, just uh, three years ago, the education secretary in the UK, Gavin Williamson, he described humanities courses that would include modern languages, which you refer to, and history and English as being of low value. Yeah, I repeat that. The education secretary in the UK, Gavin Williamson, described humanities courses as being of low value. And by that, he meant that actually the graduates earned lower salaries than did graduates in um, practical subjects like business. And he's no longer in his position. He was actually fired. But six months after being fired, he was given a knighthood. <laughs> really? Fired mm. and given a knighthood. And by the way, I don't mean to, to discuss this because this is, I want to discuss later the Great Fire of London, which King Charles II had something to do with it or, or suppressing the truth. But now all of a sudden we get King Charles III, who's a, an advocate for the Great Reset. Oh, we got disconnected. Hmm. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> so I don't know if you heard my question. I didn't want no, to talk about this, sorry. but uh, we're going to be discussing later the Great Fire of London uh, because I've been discussing the Great Fires all over the world, and a lot of them do not make sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, something came to mind. King Charles II was one of the ones responsible for censoring the truth or suppressing the truth at the time in the 1600s. And now we get Charles, King Charles III, who's an advocate for the Great Research. He's an ally of the World Economic Forum. What's your take on the new kingship? Well, the, the name Charles doesn't have doesn't bring a lot of confidence based on the history preceding history of the two earlier Charleses, uh, we, we, we can only hope that um, this Charles does things differently. And as you say, he, on his personal website, emblazoned across the top were the words, the Great Reset. Um, th- I believe that's now been removed, which is good because uh, it, it, a constitutional monarchs should not be expressing affiliations with, certainly not with bodies outside of the country in which they preside as kings or queens. That would be strictly unconstitutional. So it remains to be seen, doesn't it, how things how things evolve. But well, the name, yep, it's got an interesting history, hasn't it, as you say, Charles I, Charles II. We'll discuss the Great Fire later, but again, talking about academia, why do universities matter? Ah, they're the only body in societies across the world that have a mission to develop knowledge and impart it. And the business of developing and imparting knowledge so that we have faithful information is vital and guarantees freedoms. Uh, and, and in saying that, I'm, I'm very much minded of Thomas Jefferson, your third president, who very wisely said that if a nation expects to be ignorant and free, it expects what never was and never will be. He went on to say that the people cannot be safe without information. And by that he meant good information. So this is why universities are so important, because they're the only institutions 
that we have at the moment that have an avowed objective of producing dispassionate objective knowledge. There are no no other bodies. They're supported by the public purse in, in order to further the the knowledge aspect of society. And so if they are corrupted, as Dr. Tess Laurie suggests they are, do you remember the words that she used? She said that they are rotted to the core. Then this is a very sad day, not just for universities, but for freedom. Because remember what, what Thomas Jefferson said, that if a nation expects to be ignorant and free, it expects what never was and never will be. So if we don't have truth emerging from universities, then what what price freedom? I remember I mentioned this to you when we spoke a few weeks ago, my interview with the, uh, uh, Charlotte Iserby. She wrote the book, The Deliberate Dumbing Down of, of America. I call it the world. Why do we call it education when it's really not education, but indoctrination? Well, many people use that word indoctrination. Yes, of course. Why is why is the word education used? Because I don't think um, that, that people would go on attending schools and universities if if, if they were publicising themselves as centres of indoctrination. I mean, they may be that, but they're not going to advertise the fact. So it 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 it, it behoves us to draw the public's attention to what's going on. And after all, why should most people be aware? You know, for many people, if they went to university, it may have been a while ago. And if they have children, then they may not yet have attended university. And even if they are now attending university, it could be that the parents know very little of what's actually going on there, which is why we need uh, books like The Dark Side of Academia, How Truth is Suppressed. And that's why Truth University Press decided to publish this book because the public need to be aware of the state in which higher education is today. And and this book groups together the opinions of many people, not just Dr. Tess Laurie and John Hamer, but, oh, gosh, many other people. Um, I mean, I can quote from some of the people there if you want. Uh, Marina Warner, Professor Marina Warner, who's a well-known author of... Um, history. She had a period at Essex University and she spoke, I'm quoting, of the culture of obedience and deference that is observed in academia. And she drew parallels between this culture of obedience and deference and the world of Chinese communist corporatism. She has a way with words, doesn't she, Marina Warner? which is why she's quite quite a well-known, a very well-known author. So there she is uh, drawing parallels between the culture of a university and the culture of Chinese communism. Uh, how many of the public would be aware of that culture if it were not for a book like this, with insiders telling their story? Here's another insider. This is a professor this time, not from Essex, but from Cambridge, and this is Professor um, Peter Mandler. He was professor or is professor of modern cultural history at Gonville and Caius College, Cambridge University. He's also 
president of the Royal Historical Society. So he's a very senior academic. And he speaks of a dramatically growing gap between the senior management at most universities and their working academics. And then, not mincing his words, he considers that, quote, these are his words, senior management, even if they were once academics, now seem to be following a completely different agenda, very much set by government policy. And these are not lone voices. Thomas Doherty, research professor of English at Warwick University, he writes that we are perilously close to a position where the unquestioned power of management is producing civil war in academia. Now, that was back in 2004. So things have been not just bubbling away, but sizzling for the last decades, reaching the point where Truth University felt that a book that reveals a lot of this to the public needed to be published. In today's academia, are there any metrics to measure critical thinking skills or the enhancement of knowledge? Ah, that's a really interesting question and absolutely spot on in terms of timing because as of the 30th of August, which is, what, two weeks away? Only two weeks ago? Yes. A report was published by the OECD and I wonder if you've come across this, Mel. The title of the report is Does Higher Education Teach Students to Think Critically? It absolutely answers the question that you posed. And they come up with four findings. Shall I just go through those very quickly? Please do. So remember, this is a report by the OECD into whether higher education teaches students critical thinking. They found using uh, a test, uh, I'll just give the details in case your readers are interested. It was developed by the Council for Aid to Education, CAE, And the test itself is termed the Collegiate Learning Assessment, CLA+. So that was the test that was administered across six countries. Your own, the US, UK, Chile, Finland, Italy and Mexico. And across those countries, they found that only 45%, that's under half, of the students who were tested were proficient in critical thinking. So that was one finding, disappointing, extremely disappointing. They went on to say that the learning gain, that's their phrase, of students between the start and the end of their courses was small on average. That's also disappointing. That there was little added value, shall we say, in critical thinking skills over the course of a a degree. They found, listen to this, big discrepancies in critical thinking between courses And ironically, given what I told you about the Secretary of State for Education here in the UK and his view that humanities courses were low value, do you remember that? What they found was that fields closely aligned to real world occupations, such as business, agriculture and health, scored the worst. Yep, students studying real world occupations in business, agriculture and health scored the lowest in critical thinking. Well, guess which fields had the students with the highest scores? Art. The humanities. Humanities. Isn't that interesting? And then one of the co-authors who retired, I believe, from, from his post 
in charge of innovation at the OECD, Dr. Van Dam. He, in his view, he said that the results reflect a move away from the teaching of critical thinking in higher education, which um, is, is extremely concerning. Extremely concerning. So why is it that now they're focusing on arts, humanities, for anybody that wants to study business? Isn't business, for example, in the UK, don't the universities there attract a lot of students based on the the business education that you provide? But in, now they're really focusing on, employees are focusing on hiring people with less business experience, or not experience, but education, and they're focusing on people with humanities and liberal studies and so on. Well, it, it, again, that's interesting that you mentioned that because there is starting, it seems to be, a tendency for big employers to stop recruiting exclusively from graduates. So PwC, Price Waterhouse Cooper, which is one of the big four firms of accountants, yeah. they recently announced that new recruits will no longer require at least um, a good degree, an upper second degree. Um, and, and that's seen by many as the latest sign that some of the world's largest employers are losing faith that a good university qualification guarantees a candidate of a certain quality. And given these findings from the OECD about critical thinking, we can hardly be surprised. Uh, and nor can we be completely astonished by these findings because some very prominent voices have been um, warning us of, of, of the, 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 the alarming have been warning us about the very alarming things happening in universities. So if I quote Professor of Philosophy, Zizek, for example, author of more than 30 books. What he says, and, and he's a, an international academic. He had a, has a professorship at London University, Birkbeck College, other universities too, I believe. Uh, he's, he said that the whole business of creating metrics, I don't know if you have that in the US, but over here in the UK, there are league tables which slice universities by a number of different activities and rank them. In his view, university metrics are transforming universities into, and this is his, his quote, factories producing experts. And he says that this is stopping free intellectual inquiry and, again his words, constitutes an attack on the public process of reason, and ominously, he says it spells the end of intellectual life as we know it. I mean, these are very strong words, aren't they? And um, you can find innumerable others expressing the same sort of views, perhaps not with quite the same degree of eloquence. Although, here's another voice, Alex Preston, He's a, a, a best-selling author. He, he's uh, the author of a book called The Bleeding City. He wrote alarmingly in 2015 that, quote, the liberal education which seeks to provide students with more than merely professional qualification appears to be dying a long and painful death. And he should know, since not only did he personally read English at Oxford University, but he now teaches creative writing at the University of Kent. 
so many voices are expressing concern about what's about what's happening. So the the, the book, The Dark Side of Academia: How Truth Is Suppressed, had to be had to be brought to the public's attention because many people, uh, through no fault of their own, may not be aware of the trajectory that education has been taking here's over a, the last few decades. Here's an excerpt from the book. According to a report by the British Academy in 2020, of the 10 fastest growing sectors in the UK economy, eight employ more graduates from the arts, humanities, and social sciences than other disciplines. With these graduates working in areas including financial services, education, social work, the media, and creative industries. I come from the financial industry. I had to go through through a graduate degree in finance. I cannot even imagine if I were to hire people that had no financial education. It just just does not make sense. How are they making it work? Ah, but there was a time when a university education was not seen as simply a means to to a career, a comfortable life. Uh, a university education, and this goes back to Humboldt in Germany, viewed education as a means of expanding people's intellectual capacities. And people could go on beyond their first degree to engage in professional training, the kind that you're talking about now. They could specialize in finance or medicine, for example, after a first degree. And uh, well, even I personally can remember when I was doing my first degree, which was in the humanities, in actual fact, I remember meeting somebody, and this is going back a few decades, I have to confess, I remember meeting a fellow student who was studying commerce, and I thought at the time, oh my goodness, that's, why would anybody do that rather than enrich their mind? So, so we're living in a very different era, it seems now. Uh, and I'd like to see the clock turned back to some extent, because if we don't turn the clock back, then we risk losing the richness of the humanities. And I think humanities and culture is what, well, I'm no expert, but it, it, what, it, it, it's what makes life livable for many people. Music, novels, theatre, the imagination. If 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 we don't if we don't study humanities, it will be lost. It only takes a few generations for all of the, the legacy of the past, history, English, modern languages, to be lost. And speaking as somebody who did do a first degree in humanities, I think that would be very impoverishing. And in the West, which is compared to other parts of the world, prosperous we should really be able to afford to have our students still study the humanities. That, that, that's my belief anyway. And then they can go on and specialise in, in finance or medicine or, in my case, it was human resources after my humanities degree. When I'd had a bit of time to think about what I wanted to do. I think you're absolutely right. And even I'm guilty of this because when I went to university, I had to work full-time during the day, and I went to university at night. And I used to wonder, why do I have to take humanities? Why do I have to take psychology and some other general studies if my focus is on finance? But after I'm older, I realized that 
you need an all-encompassing education in order to be, to have a wider spectrum of thought. Mm-hmm. But back then, mm-hmm. back then, because I just wanted to get it over with and finish what I needed to do, mm-hmm. I didn't really value philosophy and all those classes, which I do now. I remember them and I, 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 I treasure what I learned. Uh, but the deliberate, the deliberate dumbing down of the world, what is the purpose? What are they trying to accomplish by keeping intellect? As you said, intellect is, is a species in extinction. Um, well, I, I can only take you back to the aims of people like Rockefeller in the past. Um, he, he appointed something, something called Frederick Gates to oversee a board he'd set up called the General Education Board. We're talking the beginning of the 20th century here. And <laughs> the man he chose, Frederick Gates, these were his words, 1912. In our dreams, we have limitless resources, and the people, the rural folk, yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hand. And he said they had no intention of making them into men of learning, science or, or, or philosophers. Oh, no, no, no. Um, there was a, a, a colleague of theirs called Dr. Inglis, who wrote something called The Principles of Secondary Education in 1918. He also published textbooks. He was in charge of secondary school textbooks at Houghton Mifflin, which still exists, I believe, as an educational publisher in the US, Houghton Mifflin. And he, he said that uh, education had two objectives. <laughs> Don't laugh. The first was to establish fixed habits of reaction to authority. And the second was to make children as alike as possible. These are the, I, I take these quotes from John Taylor Gatto, whose book is famous. Oh, sure. Was, uh, yeah. Um, he was in charge of the man who expressed those views, that the aim of education was to make children as alike as possible. Can you believe it? He was in charge of secondary school textbooks at Houghton Mifflin. And so there, there has always been this objective. I'm not saying it's correct. On the part of senior people in the establishment to use education as a tool to mold people. Very different from Jeff- Jefferson's objective there, as you can see. Um, and, oh, gosh, we... we if we go back to um, Frederick the Great of Prussia in the 18th century, he liked waging wars. <laughs> he was known as the soldier king, and he liked to um, extend his territory, and he uh, waged war on Silesia and other neighboring countries. He said that if soldiers were, begin to, were to begin to think, if soldiers were to begin to think, not one of them would remain in the army. <laughs> and he went on to say that an educated people can be easily governed. Well, given the right sort of education. So there has been a strong push for education systems that encourage conformity and turn out good workers, if you follow my drift. I follow your drift, and I think of so many more things. For example, I go back in time and I remember my parents having to buy textbooks every single year. I had four, there were five of us. And every single year, the book changed a few words and the publishing house, Houghton Mifflin, one of them, which is still alive, mm-hmm. 
they had to do this every year. They say every three to four years because that is essentially how they keep business rolling. The prices of books also rises in tandem with every new release. But that's another industry. I think education, just like big pharma or defense or energy, it's just an industry on its own. And don't get me started when it comes to, to student loans. I don't know if you have the same situation in the UK that we have here in the United States. It is an industry and a massive industry. And I did a rough calculation. I mean, UK is obviously much smaller than the US, but out of its 66 million or so population, I calculated that all oh, about 35, half of the population go through the education system over a 10-year period. Well, that's an awful lot of textbooks, isn't it, if you think about it? Um, and it's an opportunity for those who write the textbooks to influence the thinking of those children. So you might say that textbooks are to children what the media is to adults. Uh, and, and I say that because Truth University produced a report looking at secondary school textbooks and um, looking at the content of, of textbooks that, that are, are in current use. And I could give you a, a flavor of what's in some of these textbooks, if you'd like. Sure. Would you like a, an idea, Mel? You please, might... please. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Well, here's a science textbook called Go Science, which was published by Heinemann. That's a well-known publisher, isn't it? In 2008. And it was aimed at... Um, pupils aged 11 to 14. So that's an impressionable age. And it's writing about the media. And what it says, uh, quite sensibly, is that some sources of information are more reliable than others. I think you and your listeners would all agree with that. But here, here, listen to what it goes on to say. It says that if the science is being reported on a national news programme, or in a major newspaper, then the reporters will probably have checked the information to make sure it is correct information. Whereas information on the internet isn't always checked. And if you come across websites with the words alternative, alt or unofficial in their addresses, then the information not, may not be correct. That's page 150 of the Go Science textbook. So what they're saying is you can trust newspapers and the mainstream media, but you can't trust the internet. That was back in 2008. How many, gener how many, how many years of children will have read that and, and now dismiss the alternative media as a result of what the textbook told them at an impressionable age? Well, even with the internet, you probably know this. I mean, at, at least in the United States, I don't know if in that part of the world, but Google reigns when it comes to the curating of facts so-called facts here. And what a lot of people don't know is if you put any, any term, let's say, let's put Shakespeare as an example, uh, the, mm. the truth about the reality between behind the character Shakespeare. And if you go to Google, maybe they'll show you 10 pages. It will say that it found 500 million links, but it only gives you about a hundred. So they only give you what they want you to see, and most people, because of their short attention span, will not go will not go beyond the say the third page, and they mm. don't question why are you covering ninety eight percent of the data. Yes, it's selective. There's selective, and and that was the impression that that this report 
had and, and, and affected the conclusions the, of this report, which, which is available. Uh, there's, a, there's a summary of the report on the Truth University website. That's uh, www.truthuniversity.co.uk. There's an article summarizing the report looking at these school textbooks. And that was written very recently. I think it was written about six months ago. So it's all up-to-date information. And the conclusion was that there were um, many, many errors in these textbooks and also omissions. Now, when it comes to yes, what we said earlier about modern languages, modern language, the students not being able to, to, to learn that anymore because of the apps like Rosetta Stone, is automation replacing some university majors? In other words, why learn a language when you can speak to your mobile device and it will translate and even speak for you? Yes, but with this, this would be <laughs> this would be a very uh, terrible downturn for, for humanity. Um, I speak as somebody whose first degree was not just in the humanities but in modern languages, and I spent four years studying French. And wonderful four years that was, immersed in French literature, which is what I wanted to do for four years. And I loved modern French literature. I developed a, a taste for medieval French literature, 12th century French literature, which is absolutely wonderful. And I, uh, and I, to this day, I'm still interested in that and, in fact, conducting research, which stems directly out stems directly from my study of medieval French literature. Um, but today, modern languages teaching has been very severely done, done, I regret to say. And I thought it couldn't go any further <laughs> until January this year, the Department of Education put out uh, an announcement to say that for the GCSE exam, which is the exam taken at 16, for the higher level, there's a higher and a lower level of the GCSE. For the higher level uh, modern languages exams, that would be German, French, Spanish and Italian. For those, for the higher level GCSE taken at 16, the maximum number of words required was 1,700 words. Now, that may sound a lot, I don't know, but that is the typical vocabulary of a four-year-old child. 1,700 words, and, uh, whereas an adult would have anything between 20 and 30,000. So here we have the uh, Department of Education advocating um, reducing the standard still further from, from the rather low standard it has already reached, uh, saying that no more than 1,700 words in the foreign language were required to get a higher level GCE, GCSE. That, as I say, is the vocabulary of a four-year-old. That's just incredible. And it's, it's, it's terrible. It, uh, uh, as I say, um, it's, it's, I'm really lost for words, actually, um, what the consequences of this are. It, it makes it very difficult for those people to access the rich literatures of those nations. I mean, we're not just talking European nations, but... You know, Spanish is widely spoken across the world. Um, it makes it very difficult for people to access the rich German literature, the rich French literature. Never mind the cultures, you know, the musical cultures, the songs, 
you know, the, the leader of, of Schubert or Schumann, uh, it, it, it would pass you by if you couldn't understand the language because the music complements the language. I happen to be an amateur pianist, so I love I love Schubert and Schumann songs. And, um, um, well, I mean, th- we don't have to stay with this situation. That, that's the point. You know, we know what the problems are. The dark side of academia, how truth is suppressed, has set down the rather dark place we're at now. And I think now we're faced with the task of rebuilding. What do you think now? No, absolutely. And what you, you said, for example, a, a few years ago, I went with my family to, to Vienna, Austria, for the first time. And, you know, we love classical music. And what you just said right now, if part of that trip was just to go to the places with Schubert and, and you know, the Hayden and, and Schoenberg and the rest of them yeah. were able to create that magnificent creations that we enjoyed today. And if we yeah. had to impress upon them, if they were still alive today, I wonder what they would say about the, the, the state of education that we have. It's just incomprehensible. You probably well, have heard. Is. I think yes. they would because, um, I mean, the standards in their days, in their day was high. Uh, you can see this very easily if you look at the world of music. Um, as I say, I'm an amateur pianist. Um, music was a big thing in my family. My mother was a concert pianist. And um, I never wanted to, to take it that far, but I've always loved music. And there's a, there's a couple of collections, one by Schumann and one by Tchaikovsky, of piano pieces written for young people. That those collections in their titles explicitly say that they were written for young people. And that gives you an, a benchmark for what young people were capable of playing back then in the 19th century. It, it astonishes me that the standard was so high then. The standards of attainment were so high. And we hear that Queen Elizabeth I, for example, had a personal tutor and she was fluent in ancient languages as well as French. Um, now, I really think we have to rebuild. We have to try and restore some of what we had. And sometimes going back in time, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. No. I don't know. I think we have de-evolved. You know, when I, this might not seem relevant to, to the conversation, but I believe it, this is part of the book. When I look at the magnificence of many university buildings, you look at Oxford, you look at some of the Ivy Leagues buildings in the United States and throughout Europe, I wonder if what is being taught matches the appearance of those buildings. Ah, mm. that's <laughs> that's a really good question to ask. And, and um, the book that Truth University has published does, does pose that question quite explicitly. Does the research match the lavish style of the university buildings? And I regret to say that it concludes that it does not. And it opens with quite an amusing example. Don't know if you had a chance to see this one now. About some research at an Oxford college, actually, by a professor of French who was interested in the 19th century novel called Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. Yep, the humanities, yes. Which some yes. people have claimed is, is um, um, 
well, somebody, Kevin Childs, in an article in the Independent newspaper in 2021, he described that as possibly the greatest novel of the 19th century by Gustave Flaubert. It, it tells the tale of um, Emma Bovary, who has, um, she envisaged that she'll have a life of great excitement and prosperity. And the reality of her life doesn't quite match up. She marries a country doctor. And so dissatisfied is she that she takes two lovers. And there's a very raunchy scene in a carriage <laughs> around Rouen Cathedral, which must have been quite something in its day. Uh, and in the end, so dispirited is she that she commits suicide by taking arsenic. Not a happy story. But Flaubert, the art of Flaubert is in the language the beauty of the construction of the sentence. And on, on a good day, Flaubert might write one page in the week, or perhaps even two. But that, that's as much as he would write, because the art of his writing is in the detail and the crafting of the individual sentence. Um, and a historian philosopher called Hippolyte Ten, who was contemporary with him, he had this to say about Flaubert, that the mental image of things was as true to Flaubert as their objective reality. So it was all in the mind, if you like. And um, it's very interesting that Flaubert, Flaubert himself wrote this, and these are his words. He said that the characters I create drive me insane. They haunt me, or rather I haunt them. I live in their skin. And he famously said that when he was writing the end of the novel about Emma Bovary and the arsenic, he, quote, I had such a distinct taste of arsenic in my mouth uh, that I vomited my entire dinner. So, so his book was a feast for the imagination. Going back to Oxford and the research of the professor of French there, um, at at dare I say it, a college that has been the alma mater to 13 British prime ministers. What this professor of French did was go along to the covered market in Oxford. There's a, a, a very extensive covered market. And um, she asked one of the bakers there to reconstruct Emma Bovary's wedding cake, which was grotesque. I mean, it, it, it reflected Emma Bovary's fantasies. This then attracted humanity's research funding, <laughs> the production of this 3D version. How does that represent? How does that huh? represent? How does that represent value for money? Well, that's what I I asked. But did you feel the same as I do? That that's not really what one goes to university. No. And and it, and and we said how um, humanities departments are are being labeled as low value departments. Um, and in fact, many of them are being shut down. So research for humanities is few and far between. And yet this, this so-called research actually attracted scarce research monies from the humanities faculty at Oxford. Um, so yes, a good question. Do the buildings, <laughs> or does the research match the quality of the, the buildings? And, um, and well, uh, shall I shall I quote you some 
examples of modern day research. Hold on, we have to take a one and only break. I want you to quote when we come back. Uh, because I also want to bring up something that might not be related to this, but I think they might. Again, looking at the, the architecture of these buildings, you can look at the work of uh, Fulcanelli about the ancient European cathedrals. And we cannot see that anymore. That type of architecture is no longer available to us. I wonder what happened with that knowledge. But also when we come back, I want to discuss when we think of an institution being impartial, unbiased, neutral, I think of the media. And I think of universities, or at least they used to be, neither of which is neutral today. I want to know why are universities no longer neutral bystanders? But we'll get your answer on the other side. How can people buy the book? How can they reach your research, learn more about your work, and the Truth University website? Should we answer that now or after the break? No, no, right now, before the break. Right now. Okay, okay well, the book's easy. That, that can be obtained on Amazon either the e-version or the, the book itself. And, um, yep, and Truth University, that can be accessed by the website, which is www.truthuniversity.co.uk. And the title of the As book... the other questions, they're fascinating questions, Mel. Yes, and the title of the book is The Dark Side of Academia, A Truth is Suppressed. Much more when we return. I'm here with Dr. Dr. Gloria Moss. This is Mel Hostelrick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas because you don't want to believe, you want to know.